Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Toronto's great stork derby of the 1920s and 1930s is often reported in this kind of whimsical tone. And I can understand why that happens. It features a wealthy, eccentric, a highly contested will, and so, so many babies. Um, You'll often see headlines that kind of make the joke that this person that catalyzed it all was the father of more than 36 babies. And really, uh, because he made so many people have so many babies. Um, But over the years, as the story has been told with a wink, All of the more complicated issues that came into play, including classism, the right to privacy, exploitation, the role of women in society, racial superiority and eugenics, as well as reproductive rights, have kind of been left out of the discussion. So we're going to tackle some of that today. And it is, as you might expect, not always delightful. And I want to make sure that we give a heads up that this episode includes discussion of infant mortality and some fairly insensitive handling of that subject, both in the press and in the courts. Yeah, I was, uh, well, first when I got the the email with the episode outline in it, I was kind of like, why is Holly's doing a baby episode? This isn't how it normally goes. And then the longer I read it, the more I was like, this is... This, this is, is pretty this horrifying. is just as grim as Holly tends to gravitate towards. Sure, yeah. sure. This episode is not about Charles Vance Millar. That's the wealthy eccentric that Holly mentioned. But to give a brief overview of his life will help us set this situation in motion. He was born in Ontario, Canada, in 1854 to a farming family. In 1878, Millar finished his undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto, and then his next step was law school, completed in 1884. And at that point, he started a practice in Toronto working in corporate and contract law. Millar amassed a considerable fortune in his lifetime, although his law earnings were actually only a small fraction of it. He made most of his money through smart investments and real estate. He owned... So much stuff. But one of those investments was a Cobalt, Ontario silver mine, which struck a very sizable vein after Millar had purchased into it in 1905. On October 31st, 1926, Charlie Millar, as he was known to his friends, died very suddenly. He was in the middle of a meeting at his office with his lawyer, Charles Kemp, and also an official of the Canadian Post Office, George Anderson. Millar was 73 when this happened, but he had really seemed to be in great health. He had sprinted up three flights of stairs to get to this meeting. And the three men had gathered to settle a disagreement that they had had over some technicality of the law that had come up when they were just all having lunch together. Millar was kind of a jokester, but he was also really incredibly knowledgeable, and he wanted to prove to his friends that he was right about the thing they had been arguing about. So those two men got to the office after Millar. They had not sprinted up the stairs. Uh, And when they got there, he was already looking up the information he wanted in a law book. And once he found it, he pointed to it in the book. He turned to show his evidence to Anderson and Kemp and then had a stroke and died. A few days later, he was buried near the family farm in Elmer, Ontario. But that was hardly the end of his story because his will was just a whole can of worms. The Millar will was a final practical joke. 
It opened with, quote, this will is necessarily uncommon and capricious because I have no dependents or near relations and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death. And what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I required in my lifetime. Charlie Millar, with no wife or kids to worry about providing for, decided to just have a little fun with his legacy. And this entire will was full of odd bequests. Um, These are easy to find online. Each could be its own story, so we're just giving these kind of the brief. Uh, He gave his vacation home in Jamaica to three people who had to share it. Those three men that he named hated each other. Um, But it turned out that Millar had actually sold the property before he even died, so that clause wasn't even valid. He left stock in O'Keefe Brewing Company to a group of ministers who were opposed to drinking. Similarly, he left Ontario Jockey Club shares to people who thought betting on horse racing was immoral. Kind of see how this went. Uh, He also made more standard arrangements. He made uh, a plan for money to go to Toronto's hospital for sick children and for the University of Toronto. But Clause 9 of his will was a doozy, and it set in motion an unprecedented series of events. Here's how this clause read, quote, 9. All the rest and residue of my property, wheresoever situate, I give, devise, and bequeath unto my executors and trustees named below in trust to convert into money as they deem advisable and invest all the money until the expiration of nine years from my death and then call in and convert it all into money and at the expiration of 10 years from my death to give it and its accumulations to the mother who has since my death given birth in Toronto to the greatest number of children as shown by the registrations under the Vital Statistics Act. If one or more mothers have equal highest number of registrations under the said act to divide the said monies and accumulations equally between them. We don't know why he did this, but all of this meant that he ended up leaving $500,000 to the Toronto woman who could have the most babies in a decade, or women, as Tracy just said, in the case of a tie. Millar's will passed through probate court less than six weeks after his death in early December, but it did stipulate that that contest started with his death. So, from October 31st, 1926, the day Millar died, to October 31st, 1936, the Great Baby Derby, or the Great Stork Derby, as this odd contest came to be known, was in effect. Though there was speculation about how this whole thing was going to play out, it wasn't initially a huge story. In 1932, the Ontario government had an idea about what should be done with Millar's money, and it did not involve giving it to mothers. Attorney General William Price introduced a bill in March 1932 to escheat the estate, meaning that Millar's undistributed assets would be handed over to the state. The plan was for the money to be given to the University of Toronto instead of dispersed through this contest. This wasn't entirely out of the blue. An earlier version of Millar's will had left the university the bulk of his estate, But immediately after this bill became known to the public, there was a very vocal reaction against it, and it was withdrawn. Price's reasoning for introducing the bill was that, quote, the will conveyed the estate on hazardous principle and because it was not along the lines of public policy. If this move to give the money to the University of Toronto had not happened, 
It's entirely possible that focus on the Millar will would have died down, and at least until 1936 when the contest ended. But that attempt at achievement brought the entire matter into the public sphere, and it brought up questions about execution of a properly filed will and what powers the government did and did not have regarding such a document and a person's estate. For example, what sort of precedent would be set if the state could take possession of Millar's fortune in direct opposition to his wishes. And remember, he was a lawyer. He had filed all of this properly. There was no question there. There were also objections and discussions about how unfair it would be to any participants to stop the contest six years into a 10-year timeline. Some of those objections came from women's groups and some from individual women actively pursuing the prize. There was another event that added to the interest of the Baby Derby and made people follow it more closely. After the kidnapping and death of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., babies who were in the spotlight in any way were considered to be in peril. As we'll talk about shortly, there was a lot of press coverage of the women involved in this contest, and there were kidnapping threats made to a number of Derby families The daughter of one family was the target of a failed kidnapping attempt. Some of these threats were ploys to get families to step out of the competition, saying that if they didn't withdraw, their children would be taken or harmed. There was also a variety of threats of violence made to some of the mothers. From 1932 on, the Baby Derby was a frequent news topic. The combination of mostly low-income participants, debates about morality, racism and anti-immigrant attitudes, and just the absurdity of it all, as well as some feel-good articles that focused on babies and how much people loved them, made this whole thing for a kind of voyeuristic escape from Depression-era realities in North America. In October of 1936, the Des Moines Tribune ran a series of articles about the Derby as it reached the end of this decade-long window. One was under the title, quote, Stork Derby is Headache. That one relays just how disruptive this whole thing had been for government officials, writing, quote, even the eccentric attorney could hardly have guessed what a headache his bequest would give the Ontario government as the now world-famous Stork Derby moves into the last few weeks of its already hectic course. One phrase in the will, those words duly registered, is giving the Honorable Harry C. Nixon Provincial Secretary plenty of sleepless nights. And as it turned out, while some women were registering their children as they were born, some of them seemed to have adopted a wait-and-see approach, and only at the end, if they thought they might be contenders for the prize, did many of them suddenly wish to register multiple children at once, creating a huge surge of verification paperwork for Ontario's government. And it was, as that rush of paperwork mentioned above hinted at, a mess to sort out. As the 10-year period of time was closing, the legal debates about Millar's will and the rules of the contest were really just beginning. We will talk about that after we pause for a quick sponsor break. Millar's next of kin were not especially enthused about this whole thing and the thought that their relative's considerable fortune which they felt entitled to, was going to be paid out to a stranger. 
Arabella West and Alexander Butcher, who were distant relatives of Millar, made the case that the baby derby clause of the will should not be held up as legally valid. The legal tack that they chose to take was that such a bequest was against public policy. In their minds, you could not pay for babies, and encouraging women to have all manner of babies was inciting people who should not indiscriminately procreate, and this was absolutely racist and anti-foreigner at its root, to make more children than anyone wanted. There was also a concern that was used by people trying to invalidate the will that had a bit more merit. It probably wasn't something Millar's distant relatives were actually worried about, but questions were raised about whether or not it was a healthy endeavor to have as many babies as possible in a limited period of time. Yeah, I don't believe for a minute that they were actually worried about the physical well-being of any of these women, but they used that as one of their arguments. Additionally, there were aspects of this whole baby derby that had not been spelled out in the will, and those were being hotly debated. This whole business becomes really unsettling and sad. There were calls for clear guidelines about whether stillborn children counted towards the number. Children born out of wedlock were also debated as to whether or not they could be included in the tally. And if a child was born and then died in infancy, did it count or not? On top of that, the rules regarding registration of births needed to be made clear. Per the will, the babies had to be registered under the Vital Statistics Act. Children born at home might not be entered into the record right away. Whether or not late registrations well after a baby's birth could count was a matter that had to be decided. But there were also indications that the women who were most likely to win the prize were all pretty willing to work something out out of court to split the money. Several of the frontrunners had agreed to the idea even before the competition ended. But that feeling of kind of solidarity was not shared by all, and legal advisors were against it. They claimed that the entire will could once again be litigated if the courts let the competitors end the derby on their own terms. In a New York Times article from February 23rd, 1937, titled Toronto Baby Race Upheld on Appeal, the Ontario Court of Appeals was reported as having ruled that the ninth clause in Millar's will was indeed valid and upholded a previous ruling by the Supreme Court of Ontario. This article went on to quote Chief Justice Newton W. Rowell's statement on the decision, reading, quote, It appears that the question of public policy is one for the court. Evidence may not be received as to public policy, although it might be received as to the facts upon which the question is based. Coming to the question of validity, the first question is, does the word children in the paragraph of the will include illegitimate children? The court is of the opinion that the word did not include illegitimate children. The word children, prima facie, means legitimate children. It was argued that because the gift was to mothers, this rule did not apply. The court is of the opinion that it does apply. Chief Justice Rowell went on to comment on the fact that per Millar's own wording, the will was, quote, uncommon and capricious, and that the deceased was, quote, entitled to dispose of most of his property as he saw fit, provided he did not violate the law. The justice also pointed out that the relatives contesting the will were not close to Millar. It was obvious that he had not intended for them to have any part of his estate. With the appeals court upholding the validity of the contest, 
The next legal hurdle was, of course, figuring out exactly who the winner was. That process started in earnest in February 1938, well over a year after the contest decade had ended. There had been hearings about determining the winner just weeks after Millar's window expired, and that had involved 15 claims for various families and two claims filed by relatives who wanted it all thrown out. There were other contenders, but they had like no question marks or issues with their numbers because all of their paperwork was in order. But all of this came down to the decision of Justice W.E. Middleton in 1938. He had been involved since 1936, and then he watched the case and his rulings escalate up the judicial court system, only to have it land right back in his lap when it came time to determine the winner. The women involved in the competition had all undergone the immense physical labor of birthing and caring for so many children. This was a huge burden. From a health standpoint, several of the women involved had needed blood transfusions and other medical interventions near the end of the competition. Their bodies were really paying a price. But by the time they got to the point where judges were determining who the winner would be, a lot of them had also just been dragged through a whole lot of misery in the public sphere. The second any mother had emerged as a possible participant, she had become the focus of the press. The women who were competing ranged from very, very poor to kind of working class, and their entire lives were divulged by journalists to an eager and extremely judgmental readership. This is just not surprising to me based on the same thing happening today. Over the course of the Derby and intensifying as the court cases were hashing out the denouement, Papers and government offices were flooded with opinion letters about Millar's contest, and most of them were very unkind regarding the families involved. They hinted at how lascivious, immoral, and stupid many members of the public believed them to be, as well as how they thought the whole contest was the same. One woman wrote to Ontario Premier Mitchell Hepburn, quote, Would you like to tell the women from me that they are fools and the men that there is no epithet foul or strong enough to describe them? And I hope they will have to pace the bedroom floors persistently for months to come so that the babies get their own back for being the victims of avarice. The first newspaper article about possible contenders didn't actually come out until several years into the competition. That was on October 8th, 1930. And that day, the Toronto Star ran a story about two women, Mrs. Grace Bagnato and Mrs. Brown. Grace Bagnato had 20 children, 10 of whom were living, five of whom were born within the Millar will date parameters at the time of the article. Mrs. Brown had 26 children, 13 of which were surviving at the time of the article, and six of which she claimed qualified for the competition. But unlike Mrs. Brown, Grace Bagnato maintained what seemed like a constant state of pregnancy and delivery, so over time she remained in the public eye, whereas Brown fell out of the coverage. This story evidenced the social unrest and the outright racism of the time, with a quote from Mr. Brown regarding the competition, quote, If a few more Canadians would be themselves and produce a decent-sized family, the country would not be overrun by foreigners. Mrs. Brown similarly stated that, quote, I can't let any Italian get away with that leadership stuff. I'm a Canadian, and so is my husband. We're honest to gosh, dyed-in-the-wool, native-born Canadians of the fifth generation and think six babies in five years ought to lead. 
This was the kind of rhetoric that was reported throughout the remainder of the contest, both by various people that were quoted from reporters to just journalists making their own assertions. Foreigners who had a lot of babies were characterized as irresponsible. White families, on the other hand, were doing their part to ensure the strength of Canada's population. This whole problem was no doubt fomented by the large number of immigrants who had moved to Canada in the first two decades of the 20th century, because simultaneously the birth rate had been in steady decline since the mid-19th century, and there was this whole really irrational fear and panic that the white middle class was going to be supplanted by a population of first- and second-generation Canadians born to immigrant parents. Grace Bagnato, for example, was born in Canada to Italian immigrant parents and was married to an Italian immigrant in an arranged marriage when she was just 12. By the time she became known as a derby contender, she worked full-time as a court interpreter and used her spare time to help Italian immigrants with legal issues. She was also still the primary caregiver to all of those children, cooking all the meals for the whole household. Her ultimate disqualification was paperwork. She had failed to properly register two of the children, and she had undergone having to read other families talk about hers as though they were undermining society simply by existing. There were so many families who similarly struggled, many with eight children born during the Derby, so they looked like they were contenders and they stayed in the press, and they had kind of willingly accepted willingly is in air quotes there, being treated without dignity in the press simply because they saw this derby as their one chance at a better life. One reporter from the U.S., Sylvia Grace of the Pictorial Review, was an outlier in covering the story from a much more serious angle, writing of Millar's prank and impoverished families trying desperately to win, quote, the joke, if it was a joke, is not funny to them. Additionally, all the families who seemed like they might emerge the winner were courted by entertainment agents hoping to make money off of them. To families who were living in poverty, some of these deals seemed like a way to improve their lot in life, even if they didn't win the Derby. But of course, these offers were always exploitive in nature. It doesn't appear that any of the mothers actually gained anything from any of their meetings with agents. There were also some fairly horrifying constant tallies in the press, noting not just how many children there were in each family, but also whether any of the children were sick and whether their possible deaths might impact the outcome of the competition. And there were deaths in some of the families, including one of the families that ended up being declared a winner. But there was just no delicacy, really, to this reporting. While parents were obviously grieving, readers got what sounded almost like sports statistics reporting. And they also read personal details about how the child's illness had been treated by doctors. There were six mothers in the end who emerged as the final group out of an initial claimant group of 17. The first two we're going to talk about ran into a lot of problems as they tried to prove their cases, and we will get into all that after we hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. Mrs. Lillian Kenny, who went by Lily, claimed that she had given birth to 11 children in the 10-year period outlined in the will, and that would have made her the clear winner. She was often talked about in the paper as, like, the front runner, and, like, obviously she's going to win. 
but she had not properly registered two of the children. Mrs. Kenny was also an eccentric who was happy to give interviews about things like the wooden statues that she carved of Charles Millar and models of Toronto. And all of this made her a popular topic for articles, but also kind of a joke. But the reality of Lily Kenny's life was not funny at all. Her husband had lost his factory job at Goodyear Rubber in 1932, and they had been living off of Lily's meager income caring for children and government assistance since then. The Kenny family lived in deep poverty. One of their children had died from an infection after being bitten by rats in the child's crib. And although she had reached out to the Department of Health to send a doctor, this request was handled with no urgency. The doctor didn't get there in time to save the baby. So, though the media attention that she gained from agreeing to appear in lots of articles and write-ups about the Derby over the years might have made her famous, she and her family still struggled with meeting their basic needs. In a June 21st, 1936 interview, she told a reporter that she would not share the prize. The next sentence pointed out that she and her husband were on government relief. Another reporter noted that though she claimed at that point to have plenty of qualifying children, only four of the children lived at home, the others having been moved to live with relatives to help shoulder the cost of their care. And that same reporter, Frank Chamberlain, also ticked off Mrs. Kenny's many artistic pursuits. But then he closed what had been a fairly complimentary paragraph with, quote, Meantime, in the full glare of the noonday sun, she lets Mary Ann, her youngest living baby, play in a crib in front of her house. The real issue that emerged for Mrs. Kinney was that three of the nine children that she claimed tied her for the win had been stillborn. She and her lawyer believed that these should count. The lawyer for the estate believed they should not. Additionally, he pointed out that some of her children had late registrations, saying, quote, it is not for parties to come forward years after and claim registration on disputed grounds. After some attempts to try to reconcile the late registrations, Lily Kinney's lawyers asked if there could be some kind of settlement for her instead, and Judge Middleton refused. When her doctor was called in to talk about the infants that had been born dead or died very shortly after birth, Mrs. Kenny wept throughout this incredibly detailed questioning that really did not leave much space for her dignity. Mrs. Kenny left the courtroom during a second round of this brutal medical questioning, telling reporters, quote, they're treating me like a dog. I'm no dog. They're dogs. They can take the money and go to hell. Her legal team did, however, continue to appeal her case, even after she was disqualified in a judgment that included this damning sentence, quote, the conduct of Mrs. Kenny leads me to be exceedingly suspicious of her actions. Judge Middleton also included in his ruling on Mrs. Kenny's case that stillbirths should not be counted because in his view, and this is very hard to read, a child born dead is not in truth a child. Another woman, Mrs. Clark, had nine children, but five of them were born after she and her husband had separated. And while she was still married to him, she had those children with another man. This was also called out as in violation of the rules since the appeals court had outlined that only children born in wedlock would count. She initially hid her identity, giving interviews as Mrs. X in the hopes of obscuring the potential issues around her children's births. 
She had even asked reporters to please keep her name confidential as she had simply been too poor to pay the legal fees for her divorce. Her first husband had walked out on her, and she and the father of her last five children, Harold Maddow, lived as a married couple, even though they weren't legally recognized as such. Her attorneys attempted to make the case that since she was still married, her children should be considered legitimate in the eyes of the court. They also further suggested that it was possible that her legal spouse, Mr. Clark, could have possibly been the father, but this only served to damage her case. As the discussion of which man may have fathered her children unfolded, it was, of course, a degrading conversation. The judge even joked about her perceived promiscuity in his remarks, and she was also characterized as a bad mother. Further complicating her case was the fact that she had registered some of the children with her boyfriend's last name, and she told the court this was because she was afraid of her husband and that he might try to take the children if she gave them his last name of Clark. In addition to all of this, it also came out in court that Harold Maddell, the boyfriend, had been physically abusive during their relationship, and that relationship had ended before the court proceedings began. Mrs. Clark had not ever even intended to participate in the Derby until her doctor mentioned it to her in 1936 when she gave birth to twins. And by the end of all this, Judge Middleton had ruled that she had turned her back on her children and abandoned them with relatives. And though she had wanted to get them back and believed the prize money would enable her to do so, she was disqualified. The four families who won which were the Timlicks, the Nagels, the McLeans, and the Smiths, were all white. Three of them were Protestant, and several of them had stayed out of the spotlight as other contestants had been really harangued and just turned into media fodder. They hadn't made their intent to be counted among the competitors known until the last month of the contest window. The Timlicks, Arthur Hollis and Lucy Alice Timlick, had 10 children they believed were eligible for the Millar Derby. Lucy was Irish by birth, but had traveled to Canada to work on a farm when she became an orphan as a child. There are some question marks about that whole thing as well. Arthur, who worked for the city parks department as a mechanic, was from Saskatchewan. They submitted their intent to claim the prize a few months before the contest ended. Mrs. Timlick had suggested in the summer of 1936 that the top seven contenders just all split the $500,000 that had been set aside for the winner. Kathleen Ellen Nagel and her husband had 12 surviving children when the contest ended. Nine of them were eligible. They came from Irish families, but they'd both been born in Ontario. Mr. Nagel worked as a carpenter, but had only been able to pick up piecemeal jobs in the last few years of the Derby. In interviews, Kathleen Nagel exhibited a sense of solidarity with the other mothers in the competition. She said that she had planned to ensure that her competitors got at least some of the money if she won. She also intended to put most of the winnings toward her children's education. Two of the four winning mothers were from lower-middle-class families. Both of them had been reluctant to enter the Derby, and they did so only after reporters from the Toronto Star reached out to them to encourage them to compete. Annie Catherine Smith and her husband told the reporter who reached out to them that they had not been following the Baby Derby and they didn't know much about it. But they had nine children during Millar's 10-year window. The star reporter had looked it up. And so they entered on October 21st, 1936, which was just 10 days before the Derby ended. 
the Smiths were in a more stable financial situation than most of the competitors. Mr. Smith was a firefighter. He had fought in World War I. They were described in the press as, quote, an affable and courteous pair who were, quote, kindly, sensible folk. Their house was in a pleasant neighborhood. It was reported that they had a garden. The descriptions of them were always about how good-looking and just nice they were. The McLeans, which were Isabel Mary McLean and her husband, were very wary of disclosing their identities publicly. A Toronto Star reporter had convinced them to do an interview in August of 1936, which was two months before the Derby ended. But they had not decided to participate at that point, and they went by the aliases of Mr. and Mrs. A. According to Isabel, they knew about the baby competition, and they had nine children, all registered with vital statistics, but her husband was not convinced that they should do it. And up to that point, they had been hearing about people with 10 and 11 babies, so they really didn't think that the risk of losing their anonymity was even worth it, since they didn't think they would be in the running to win. One thing that's very apparent in that early write-up is that the press really liked the McLeans. In contrast to the way women like Lily Kenny had been written about, the McLean home was described as having, quote, a pleasant air of moderate prosperity and thrift. Mr. McLean worked for the highways department in an office job, so to the press, this was the respectable family they had hoped to see win the Derby. Isabel McLean didn't enter the competition until the day before it ended on October 30th, 1936. The Timlex and the Nagels became friends over the course of the competition. They actually celebrated Christmas together in 1936. And this was not the only friendship to develop. Most of the mothers who were frontrunners in the last year got to be fairly close because they had all discussed ways that they might be able to split the fortune and benefit everyone. One family had even offered to donate blood when the Timlick's child was gravely ill. They had had the child that died during the competition. Each of the four winning families received $100,000. Most of the very poorest families who had competed did not win any money. The press coverage of the winners continued for several months after the final decisions had been made. It lauded each of them for how well and how sensibly they had transitioned to financial comfort. A write-up about the winning families in the Toronto Star in May 1938 stated, quote, For of the four winners, one is a civil servant and one a fireman, and an employee of the city parks department, and the last a carpenter, a quiet gentleman of Roman Catholic faith who regards every child that comes to his home as a gift from God, for which he is most intensely and happily grateful. You'll notice that these descriptions are all actually about the fathers, when Millar's will had stipulated that the contest was among mothers. So calling the fathers the winners just really rankles me. Um, Another interesting aspect of this post-Derby coverage of the winning families is that while they had not all been on the same financial footing when they entered the contest, once they had won, they were all described as if they had always been kind of lower middle class. In 1938, Mrs. Clark and Mrs. Kenny filed an appeal for their disqualifications. While they were not deemed contenders for the big prize, they were each given a payout of $12,500 and an out-of-court settlement with the winning families. For all of the families who had tried to get a piece of Millar's fortune and failed, the gamble left them in a really precarious position of having huge families to support. While all of the women interviewed over the course of the competition and the aftermath said that they loved children and they had wanted to have all those babies... 
It's also pretty likely that a number of them had more children during Millar's stork derby than they otherwise might have. One take on this is that women were trying to achieve a better standard of living for their family through one of the few ways that they could, childbearing. In a 1994 paper by Elizabeth Marjorie Wilton, she points out that there is a huge unknown element in all of this regarding family dynamics of any of the participants. We do not know them. We don't know much about the mindsets of most of the husbands involved. We don't know whether the wives were exploited or felt exploited by their spouses, and whether there had been any discussion among them prior to attempting to join the competition about the financial ramifications if they lost. Mrs. Kenny continued to have problems and to be a subject of public scrutiny after she had three home fires in a short period of time. In each instance, the home was destroyed and she and her family had to move. This gave rise to questions about whether she had somehow been involved in the fires. She was never found to be responsible, and eventually she, like the rest of the Derby mothers, were pretty much forgotten by the press as different and new stories took over the focus. Yeah, she really got harangued for several years. It's worth noting that this entire thing obviously completely changed the lives of these people, but it also changed the public image of Charlie Millar. Prior to his death, he had long been known as a wealthy and extremely successful lawyer. And his friends may have known him as a prankster. Most of them would describe him that way, but most people did not. But the will and the baby derby had an almost instant effect, as described by writer Eric Hutton in a June 15, 1952 article in McLean's magazine. Quote, Overnight, Charles Vance Millar underwent a posthumous change from a rich, respectable stuffed shirt into a fabulous character who was to receive more conversational and news page space in Toronto than any other subject between World Wars I and II. And that included Lindbergh's transatlantic flight and the stock market crash. Oh, there's so much to unpack in this thing. Yeah. I have many thoughts. Yeah. Many of them are crabby. (laughs) (laughs) I have crabbiness about Millar. We can maybe talk about that on Friday. I have crabbiness about all of it. Um, Yes, we will talk about so much of this on Friday. And I want to mention at least one of the participants that we didn't really get to focus on in this one because it was a little long and we had to cut some stuff. But um, I will do a much more delightful listener mail since this was a little bit rough. Okay. This is from our listener, Jane, who writes, it's about noodles. Uh, Years ago, I was very fortunate that my grandparents took me to Italy. In Rome, every day on my way to the hotel lobby, I would peruse the menu on the elevator wall planning my evening meal because that's what you do when not sightseeing. There was a dish, noodles with cream, which didn't sound very appealing, but every day it would catch my eye. There was also a German language menu, and I saw it there, Nudeln mit Creme, which I figured was noodles with cream, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out what this dish was. On a particular day, I happened to be on the other side of the elevator and looked at the menu, and lo and behold, this menu was in Italian. So I quickly looked for the possible translation of noodles with cream, and all of a sudden, the penny dropped. Fettuccine Alfredo. My heart soared, my mouth salivated, Needless to say, I had my noodles with cream that night and every night after that until we left Rome. I enjoy your podcast very much. Keep up the good work. Uh, Thank you so much, Jane. You are a woman after my own heart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
If you would like to write to us about delicious things you have eaten, they provide great ends to episodes that are downers. You can do that at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not yet subscribed, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.